If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading two passages today from ESV. The first is Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. And I'll be reading from Luke 20, verses 19 through 26. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a Daenerys. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. You may be seated. Thank you, Steve and Melinda, for serving us so well. And Steve is an elder and former board chair. They've both given a lot to, to serve us. <clears throat> we begin today with a letter from 1802 that gives us a famous phrase that is deep within the American psyche. Believing with you that religion is a matter which is solely between man and his God that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach action only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence the act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should, quote, make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, end quote, thus building a wall of separation between the church and the state. So wrote Jefferson to the Danbury Baptists that it is this gloss on the First Amendment that gives us that phrase, the separation of church and state. And you can see many people in our midst uh, as we go through the week have this kind of view of religion, that it's a private matter. It is your uh, personal opinion that it has no room in other spheres of life. You just keep it to yourself. And when you're outside the walls of Providence Church, well, you're doing something else. And for us today, the, the passage that we've read, oftentimes what Jesus says here is used to kind of strengthen the Jeffersonian view of a private faith. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. 
God. So I hope today at the end of our time together, we see actually Jesus isn't saying, well, you know, you, you've got the, the faith thing and, and Sunday mornings between 1040 and 1140, you do the God thing. But for the rest of the week, you know, you do the political thing and the two shall never meet. Is that what Jesus is saying? Alternatively, I think what we'll see is that Jesus has a much higher calling for his people and this will inform our way forward, begin to inform our way forward in what's sure to be a divisive year. But before we get into that famous line, let's look at how this is set up and I think a key kind of practical preface comment. If you remember what happened last time we were... Uh, together, that this is the last week of Jesus' life, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, we could call them the kind of cultural elite, that they want to destroy Jesus and they take him head on. This is the beginning of chapter 20, and with just a few lines, Jesus exposes them, that they admit that they, they don't know what they're talking about, that they can't recognize a true prophet when they see them. You could say this should be what they're, I think we'd call it today, like their key domain awareness. They admit, we don't know. And uh, consequently, they walk away embarrassed, and Jesus uh, shines, as he routinely does. So today, they change their approach. Notice verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something that he said. So they take an indirect approach. And this, by way of preface comment again, this is not the most felicitous of topics, but I think it's important to say because our Lord tells us, and here he encounters it himself, it's this, watch out for the wolf in sheep's clothing. So here you've got certainly well-spoken people that they are uh, known and contacted by those who call the shots and that they pretend, notice again, they pretend to be sincere. And how do they begin with Jesus? Well, with flattery. Look at verse 21. They say, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. In other words, Jesus, nobody teaches as accurately as you. We know you're, you, you, you're, you, know, you never misstep and they kind of butter him up. And I think verse 23 is helpful for us practically today. Jesus perceives their craftiness. Now, how did he perceive their craftiness? You could say, well, he's the son of God. He knows all things. Definitely true. But I'd like to think also that Jesus is teaching us a very important lesson about intuition and judgment. You know, most decisions in life, even in our, our scientific age, people would have you believe that, like, overwhelmingly the big things in life are, are scientific method, when in fact, scientific method is used very little in, say, our week ahead. That you're going to make thousands of decisions. Every person in this room is going to make a thousand decisions, and a lot of them come down to this realm, no, not of putting it under the microscope or following a mathematical formula, but rather to say, I think this is right. Judgment and intuition, perceiving, you know, this doesn't smell right. Think of it, you know, you have interactions with people, you know, should I approach them with that? Should we have this discussion now as a parent? Should I use truth here or more grace? Or should I go on that trip or not go on that trip? Or what kind of slide should I put in my, in my, my presentation to get the sale? Say, all these really come down to my good judgment or bad judgment. And what I'd like to propose to us here in this scenario is that for those of us who are followers of Jesus, then insofar as we're surrendered to him, that actually what can happen is that he can sanctify, the Spirit of God can in fact sanctify our intuition and our judgment. 
to say as we mature in the Lord, that as we go through and the decisions keep coming, again, lots and lots of decisions, if I'm close to Jesus, then the kind of intuitions and judgments that I have uh, might rightly honor him. You know, there's a good rule in pastoral counseling that the conscience, which remarkably is a category that I think uh, Christians and non-Christians tend to agree on, there's this thing called the conscience, and that if someone has a check, a Christian has a check in their conscience, say, I don't feel right about this, pastorally, you know what? It's always obey your conscience. God gave you the gift of your conscience, your intuition, your judgments. And as we follow Jesus to say things like this, the very real reality, right, that not everyone who sounds good, who speaks well, uh, we Americans can be real, uh, really drawn in to people who speak well. Not everyone who speaks well is a good person. Not everyone who seems good is good. And not everyone who says, I'm a Christian, is really a Christian. Say, why am I talking about this? Because sometimes we look on the news and there's somebody doing something that say, well, that doesn't look like it's, you know, really following Jesus and say they're holding up a cross while they're doing it. Or they say, I'm really a Christ follower, but there's an incongruity there. Say, well, Jesus warned us about this kind of thing. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And again, to press into this a bit, bit further, a lot of my generation has been greatly discouraged, I think, by moral fallout of prominent Christian speakers. Not all of them, but today some may speak very well, they seem very good, they do it for a few decades, and then the skeletons come out. It can be very hard on one's faith. Unless we see it through the lens here, to say not all those who speak well and who claim things really is what we're aiming at, and for all of us to remind ourselves of those who a, finish well, but more importantly, to say Jesus never let us down. Uh, our faith is about Jesus. He's so unlike every human actor that there's no duplicity in him. Say, quite frankly, I see too much of myself in these spies, you know, buttering people up. Hey, you're a swell guy, only to get what I want. Jesus has no duplicity and here practices perfect judgment. So I pray that this year that we pray for an increasingly sanctified intuition and good judgment, and I suppose the Bible would call this wisdom, as Jesus puts on display here. They're out to get him. They butter him up. They're pretending to be sincere, but deep down what they really want to do is cause real trouble. May the church, depending on God, know the difference. So watch out for the wolf in sheep's clothing. Now to the point about this this matter, the, the real debate. So notice uh, we can pick it up in verse 22 that this group of spies asks, I would call this a very dangerous question. You ever think about that? Are there su is there such a thing as a dangerous question? I say, yes, there are dangerous questions. Um, maybe you're thinking of one maritally that could be a dangerous question, but this is much more serious politically. A dangerous question here. Why is it so? Notice again. He said, they ask him, uh, verse, sorry, 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? You see, what the problem here is, is that if Jesus says yes, you remember last week, he comes into Jerusalem hailed as the Messiah. 
that he rides in on the unwritten, uh, unwritten donkey, which is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, that the people are laying down palms. They're qu quoting Psalm 118. They're saying, this is our king, that he's the one who's going to come in. He's going to you know, lead this great uh, act of uh, you know, going to throw out the Romans who are oppressing us. Uh, so on the one hand, if Jesus says, yes, I think you should, should pay your taxes to Caesar, people say, well, why are, why are we going to continue to pay the group that you're here to throw out? Uh, you, you must be a kind of fraud. I mean, any real Messiah would not encourage us to continue, continue pouring into this kind of oppressive regime. So yes is a complicated answer for Jesus' followers, and so the spies say, you know, let's, if he says yes, he'll lose his following. The movement's done. A more dangerous answer would have probably been no. Stop paying your taxes to Caesar. Stop giving the tribute. Why is that? Because at this time in Judea, Judea is a technical term. It's, it's the Roman province of the Orients, the East. There are many anti-tax rebellions. Uh, some things never change historically. Then, like now, we tend not to like paying taxes. If you like paying taxes, Pastor Denny and, and Deacon Flinner would like to talk with you, uh, right? So very few of us uh, don't like paying taxes. Uh, but anyway, anti-tax rebellions are very common. And when there was an anti-tax rebellion among the Jews, the Romans put that down swiftly and savagely. Lots of bloodshed. You, you want to get, you know, that old friend, you want to get the blood up of the Roman government, all you have to say is stop paying your taxes to Caesar. So no is a very, so yes is a dangerous answer. He'll lose his following. He's a pretend Messiah. Why do we keep paying the people who are about to topple? No is a very dangerous answer because the rebellion that he'd be leading would be put down in, in a very bloody way. How is Jesus going to get out of this? Well, he does what he routinely does, which is answer a question with a question to get people thinking at a deeper level. But this one is accompanied by, notice, an object lesson. So I have an example here. It's a fourth century denarius. But nonetheless, he says, bring me a denarius. You know, by the way, you, you didn't know I deal only in Roman coins, do you? Yes, if you start giving in Roman coins, it'd be fantastic. Anyway, uh, why do you think he says to the, this group that's out to get him, say, you, you, do you have a coin? See, I think already Jesus' answer is underway, that he's always a step ahead of me, because what they have to do, I'm sure Jesus and his followers had a denarius. I mean, they just reach down in, in their pouch, you know, and say, here's one right here. They certainly had them, but by Jesus saying, can, can you show me a coin? What he made them do is, is say, oh yeah, they use it. That's their currency. That's how they get paid. So they're in some way complicit in this to say they're the ones who are saying, oh, that, that is the means by which you get on. So already uh, he's showing them who, for who they are. And in one side of this co coin, the, the Roman denarius, one side of the Roman denarius would have had a title, Pontifex Maximus chief priest, great priest, that every Roman emperor was the chief priest. The chief priest of what? The chief priest of all the pagan gods of Rome. So now look at the irony how it's built. That they come to Jesus thinking that they're going to get him in a trap. There's a little bit of edginess here between the divide between the Jews and the Romans. He makes them say, put on display, oh yeah, you, you carry this around in your pocket. And by the way, look who's put them up to this back in verse 19, the chief priests. The chief priests of the Jews put the spies up to this, 
only for them to produce a coin out of their pocket that says Caesar is in fact the chief priest. Do you see the duplicity in that? Now, whether anyone picked up on that or we only have the luxury reading behind, but Jesus, again, much ahead of them with the coin. Now, out of this line that he asked them, the question that he asked them, I think three profound truths. So what's the question where, how Jesus responds? He says, show me the denarius. All that takes place, and he asks this. Whose likeness and inscription does it have on it? Other versions of our English Bible might say image. Whose image and likeness and inscription is on that coin? They say Caesar's. Out of this notion of likeness and Caesar, I think here come the three biggies. And I'm going to start with number three today. I kind of reversed the order yesterday. I think it'll flow better. But first is this. They would have been surprised at the first part of Jesus' answer. They say, okay, Caesar's image is on it. Verse 28, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, Jesus seems to, to say, and I follow the traditional, the historic Christian interpretation of this verse, that there is a place for governmental activity. That there is a place where Caesar calls the shots. And I, I you know, somewhat get agitated at those who produce literature, New Testament scholars say, well, don't you know that Jesus is, you know, he's a revolutionary. He's kind of a leftist radical out to topple the government. He's an anarchist. Say, no, Jesus is not. He doesn't say, you know, forget all the laws of the land and just do everything you can to kind of disrupt the civil order. Say, that's not what he's saying. He said, actually, that inscription is Caesar's. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. That all of us as Christians, that we participate in the civic realm in such a way that really we benefit from it. So there's a long-standing history of the Christian church of being good citizens in the polis, outside the walls of this church, that we participate in a way that's productive, that's for the city. Um, you, you know, I, I, I think all of us anticipate we, we pay our taxes. You'd never hear me say, you know what, let's just stop paying our taxes. Or maybe to say, you know, these road signs out here that tell us how fast to go, non-Christians made those speed signs, let's just blow through them. We don't need that. Or let's just start plundering the, the businesses of non-Christians. Say no, no Christian, I hope, would, would say those things. Why? Because God sets up civic governments for our good, that we participate in them, and in such a way that, it, that is for our benefit. And we only would uh, object to that when we're asked or forced to do something that's a direct assault on God's, God's word or God's name. So I ask this sometimes in my church history classes, that through most of the, the medieval church, the church is really carried through by the monastic tradition. Uh, why don't we just withdraw? I mean, every member of the church, somebody find a plot of big land, uh, we'll all pitch our tents, we'll be agrarian farmers, and we'll just withdraw from society and do our own thing, and, uh, you know, for lack of, to, to hell with everybody else. Why don't we do that? Because I think the current of Jesus' ministry and in the New Testament is so strong that we're to minister to non-believers, that we're to be in the world, but not of the world, but we're to be there ministering, doing the good, propelling uh, things forward in a way that would most honor God. So when Jesus says, this would have been surprising, I think, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, what he's saying is participate where you can in a good way in the city of man. So implication number one. Secondly, and, and then Roman numeral one here, this gets a bit thicker in terms of the richness of it. 
God's people were routinely warned against a preoccupation with false images. Uh, that any Jewish child from a very young age would have known the Ten Commandments. I'll read to you the Second Commandment. You'll remember when we went through Exodus, it reads this. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments, is Exodus 20 and verse 4, four to 6. In other words, every, every Jewish listener, when asked about images and likenesses on coins, should have this immediate context written in their mind about the second commandment that says God's people don't do that. God's people aren't interested in, in, in inscriptions and having their vision on, uh, their image on coins and things. Actually, when that goes a bit further, as it does here, that that becomes blasphemous. Why do I say that? Because you remember one side of the denarius says Pontifex Maximus, chief priest. The other side of the coin, this time Tiberius, his emperor, would have said this. Tiberius, Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. There you see Roman emperors were worshipped as gods. So they're exposed that not only do they deal in this currency that claims that Caesar is in fact the chief priest and they have the title chief priest, but also they carry around a coinage where Caesar is labeled as the son of God. That this again in the Jewish mind would be something that would be de deeply blasphemous. So it's a reminder, I think, at base to say, remember that we're different. Caesar and the people that are worried about temporal things, they're into images and icons and idols. We're not about that. We're about the Lord. Third implication. Whose likeness, image, inscription does that coin have on it? Rendering to God what is God's brings up this question. Well, in whose image are you made? If this little coin, which is going to fade away, is now has no value, like the one in my pocket, it's uh, here today and gone tomorrow, if Caesar's about that because his image is on, on it, in whose image are you? Once again, our first reading, right, at the first page of the Bible. And it's worth reading again. First page of the Bible, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. You see the same words. In, in our image, in our likeness is how I've made humans and let them have dominion over the fish and of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. In other words, everybody should have heard, well, yes, yeah, Caesar's about the coins, but whose image are we? that we belong to God. And this is where I think Jefferson and a whole host of, of commentators through the centuries, when they say the separation of church and state, keep the God stuff inside the walls of providence, but when you go out there, leave your religion aside, say, that's not an option. <laughs> Rendering to God what is God's, if I'm in the image of God, is all of me. It's everything. 
It's my money and my mind and my home and my relationships. It's all his. Whose image is the coin? Caesar's. Great. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. That's his. It's temporal. Whose are you? I'm in God's image. It's all his. And I yield myself to him. So three implications. When Jesus uses that word likeness, what does it do? Yeah, there are some things that belong to the state. Christians participate and influence things towards the good. But more importantly, this idea of false icons and images should conjure up in us to say we're different. We're not into that. We're about Jesus. And thirdly, if we're made in God's image, if his mark is on us, we represent him and we don't compartmentalize our faith. So that brings us then, I think, to our, our final question and the big question. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Well, what does it mean to render what things are God's? Uh, how, do I, how do I actually render things to God? Say Caesar has a domain, but it is subordinate. It is always subordinate to God's domain. Caesar only has a state because God has willed it. So a Christian, I think what Jesus is saying here is because all of me belongs to God, that everything that I do and how I participate ought to drive at the name of Jesus, that the political realm is not neutral, that we drive it towards the good. But the other side of this, um, I think we need to be thinking about very acutely in 2024, that I think we all know in the next 10 months that things in our country could be a little bit rough, uh, that people will be talking to each other in a way that I think oh, Christians don't talk to each other that way. Uh, they'll be posting on social media things that we say, it's probably not good for me to take in. And one thing that I've been thinking about this year is I cannot allow my physical neighbors, I'm talking about the actual people on my street, I don't want the people on my street to think I'm more enthusiastic and excited about a politician than I am about Jesus. Because I think that this is what happens, that some of us, you know, we put out the signs, we get the bumper stickers, we're pumping all this stuff out on social media and say, my neighbors, they know, they know where I'm at politically, but they don't know what's most important to me, which is Jesus came to save sinners. And I think for all of us to say, if, I, if I'm so excited about a candidate and then I'll, t I'll talk about him and send things out to say, what is that saying about render to Caesar what is Caesar? Yeah, there's a place for Caesar, but render to God what's God's. What's God's? It's all his. My life's about him. If I, I'm happy for sports and politicians, but I'm not like excited about what God has done in Jesus, we've missed it. And so what an opportunity we have as a church in 2024 to recognize this truth that there's a realm for Caesar. It's temporary. It's good. We benefit from it, participate. But there's a realm that's God's, that is much grander, and we should honor him. So how do we honor, honor God? Well, Jesus is the perfect image of the Father. To say each of us made in God's image that we're all deeply marred. But as we surrender to Jesus and are drawn in by him that he will replenish the likeness in us and we will be better representatives of him. So church family, I guess, for Christians, takeaways from this is to think about these two domains. Are we Jeffersonians? Keep your faith private and it's good for church, but when you go out there, leave it aside. Or as Jesus saying here, there's a place for Caesar, do all the good you can, but actually it's all about him. 
And how do I make that known to my neighbors? And if you're not a believer here today, you're not a follower of Jesus, take a look again at verse 26. Jesus stymies them, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. What do you think about that? Say again, maybe you're those who say, well, I can't talk to religion about people. That's the way I was taught, and I just, I stuff it. I might be impressed with Jesus, but that doesn't come out. I hope today you see in the clutter and what's ahead, your discouragement that you see Jesus is altogether different, that our allegiance is to him, that this church is about him, lives are about him, and that as where our eyes are open to what he did on the cross for us, God's cosmic plan of redemption, that we cannot be, be silent. Jesus says if the church is silent, then the rocks will, will cry out. So not be silent, but to say, I do. I marvel at Jesus, and I can't wait to tell others about him. May he be honored in our midst, and may we render to God what is God, which is our very self. So I'll invite Andy and Linda, the team, back up. Loving and gracious Father, it's very tempting for many of us in this room to compartmentalize our faith and how we operate in the world. And sometimes we call upon these verses to justify that. Well, there's the Caesar part and the Lord part to say it's not that that there is a place to participate in the civic order, but much grander calling is that we are made in your image, that as we submit to Jesus, that as we follow Jesus, that we're more and more like him, that the likeness of your representatives as your image bearers is more and more restored until we're called home. And Father, help us to see the opportunity we have in 2024 as the church, that they say something like this, just a, a wonderful chance to say, how do we love our neighbor? How do we tell them about Jesus? They become more and more discouraged about the political sphere to say, actually, there's a grander kingdom that this government only has standing because God's willed it. Will you come to Jesus? Do you see him? Do you see what he did for sinners? So, Lord, may we be about your business. May others come to know Christ in a personal way. May he be lifted high. Amen.